0: So, April 5th of 2009, is a a pretty important day for me. That's the day that I became a member of this church, the Presbyterian Church of Kenneth Square. And if you've been around long enough, you know that we are in the habit on such occasions as welcoming new members that we often give books away. Well, I received a book that day. A book that you guys may have read, at least some of you may have read, called Total Church by a couple of guys named Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. And I want to read to you a quote from that book because I find that it summarizes so well the passage that Margaret just read for us. And it goes like this. The church is a community of the Holy Spirit. It's a living community where things happen because God is at work. When our hearts are moved in worship, when people are changed by God's Word, when we turn to God in prayer, when we care for one another, when we act in selfless ways, and supremely when people are saved, all these are signs that the Spirit is at work. Paul says that in Christ you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by His Spirit. So this is not some theoretical entity, It's not a perfect church, but it's real. It's a local congregation with all sorts of problems. The community formed by the gospel, for the gospel, is the community in which God dwells by his spirit. I want us to hear that last part again. That the community formed by the gospel, for the gospel, is the community in which God dwells by his spirit not theoretical. It's not some far-fetched idea that's out there. And it's certainly not perfect, but it is real. With all the bumps and bruises and blemishes, it is very, very. Real. This community formed by the gospel, for the gospel, this community in which God dwells by His Spirit, this is us. This is us. This local Presbyterian church in Pennsylvania. There's a weightiness to that. The fact that God is here, that He's here, at work here in us and through us, in a very real way by His Spirit, as we are the body of Christ.
1: And did you get the sense that as Margaret read this passage for us, that there is to be
0: a distinctness about us as a community? That as a community of the Holy Spirit, That we have distinct things that tell us who we are and what we are about. And I think that's what Luke is driving at in our passage, right? That our common life in the Spirit makes the church a distinct community. Our common life in the Spirit makes the church a distinct community. And in our passage and in its context, I think we see three things that really jump out to us. That we're distinct in our identity of who we are. We're distinct in our commitments, and we're distinct in our witness. Our common body of the Spirit makes the church a distinct community in regards to its identity, its commitments, and its witness. So we're going to think about these things today. First, let's think about our distinct identity. We're going to be looking at the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, as we get started. So here's what Luke writes. In the first book, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth." One of the beautiful things that Luke does as he opens the book of Acts is he makes it very clear to us the continuity between his two volumes of work, between between his, his gospel and what he writes concerning the early church. And the common thread that Luke uses to tie these two words together is Jesus. The common thread that that Luke uses to tie these two words together is Jesus. Volume 1, the Gospel of Luke, as he tells us, deals with all that Jesus began to do and teach during his time on earth until he was taken up to heaven. And Luke leaves this statement unresolved. We have a beginning, but we don't have an end to it. implying that the work of Christ now continues on into the book of Acts, which it most certainly does. Jesus continues his work by his Spirit in his followers. And so we read in the very next chapter as we go into Acts 2 about this dynamic event that sets off an explosion of evangelistic activity in the book of Acts, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We have to ask, well, why, why does this event matter? Why did it matter then? And why should we really take interest in it now?
1: And I think something that we often
0: tend to do is we read our Bibles in this disembodied way. We read from the perspective of an outsider looking in. We read the story of Scripture, and as it unfolds, it feels distant or detached, like it's their story of the characters on the page,
1: but it's not my
0: story. And that's just not true. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is this continuation of the work of Christ. This event, as we come to see as Peter continues to preach in Acts 2, is a link and a chain between the Old Covenant and the New, that there is continuity here, which allows us as the Church, even today, to say that the Bible is my story. This is my God. These are my people. They are such as we are united in Christ through the Spirit. I want us to hear this quote from one New Testament scholar. It's a little long, but I think it helps us see this idea really clearly. It says, The story of God's saving love does not begin at Bethlehem's manger. It begins in the Garden of Eden, when God promises that the Son of the Woman will crush the head of the serpent and it continues in God's promise to Abraham, made with an oath. This the writer of the Hebrews says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of all his promise. The story of the church begins with Israel and the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God. And as that story unfolds, God reveals more and more not only what he will do for his people, but who people will be. God calls Abraham and promises to make him a great nation, a blessing to all the families of the earth. He calls Israel out of slavery in Egypt and makes his covenant with them at Mount Sinai. He gives them the promised land and makes David king over Jerusalem. God's judgments on Israel's sin divide that nation so that Israel and Judah are then carried away and swore into captivity. But God does not forsake his people. The prophets renew God's claim on them and predict both restoration and renewal, that their God promises to bring them back from the dead, as it were, to restore them to their land and to make them a witness to the nations. And to keep this promise that God made, He Himself must come, and He will circumcise the hearts and renew His covenant with His people, so that they will indeed be His people and He will indeed be their God. Then Jesus Christ comes, not only as the promised Messiah, the Anointed Son of David, but also as Emmanuel, God the us. And He calls His disciples and establishes His assembly. The people of God become His heirs of His kingdom. And after His resurrection, He commands His disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they receive from the Father what was promised—the Holy Spirit. His coming is to fill the assembled disciples at Pentecost and establish the New Testament Church, the New Covenant Church, and that is us. A New Covenant Church, a community of the Holy Spirit, standing as God's people alongside the saints who have come before us and those who will come after us. That's part of our distinct identity. That in the Spirit is that we belong to God, standing on His grace and His promises, in the same way that the saints before us have stood on His grace and His promises. So as the Church, we have this distinct identity as God's people, the roots that reach deep back into the pages of Scripture. And yet at the same time, we as the Church have a distinct identity in the way that we are transformed by the person and work of Christ. If we look again at Peter's sermon in Acts 2, he lays out six distinct ways in which Jesus shapes the identity of his people. We'll go through these pretty quickly. Number one, Jesus shapes the identity of his people through his life and ministry. Acts 2:22. Men of Israel hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did you in your midst as Number two, Jesus shapes the identity of his people through his death. Acts 2.23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of laws men. Number three, Jesus shapes the identity of his people through his resurrection. Acts 2.24. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be helped. Number four, Jesus shapes the identity of his people through his exaltation. Acts 2.33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, what you yourselves are seeing. Number five, Jesus shapes the identity of his people through the salvation that's found in him alone. Acts 2.37 and 38. Now when they heard this, what Peter was preaching to them, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Number six, Jesus shaped the identity of his people by forming them into a new community. Acts 2 41, and those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So, with more time, we're going to pack each one of these one by one, and it's probably a good thing to do. But in summary, what do we say about who Jesus is and what he's done and how that has shaped our identity as his people? Well, we might say that dead in our sins and with no hope in ourselves, God came in the flesh to be our rescuer. That through his life and ministry, Jesus not only reflected who God is, but what life lived with God looked like. His life was perfect in every way. Completely spotless, blemish-free, and yet as our spotless lamb and as our great high priest, he offers himself to God as a sacrifice for our sins, to make atonement for our world. In the death that we moved. It's through that death that we're forgiven. No longer were the chains of sin and death able to hold us because they couldn't hold Jesus. God raised him from the dead, assuring that the resurrection is real and it's true for everyone who puts their trust in Christ. And having ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, Jesus, now reigning and ruling over heaven and earth, he is our. There is no greater authority than Christ. The benefits of Christ's work, there are ours. We turn from ourselves, and we turn from our sin and our own authority and our desire to run our life our way, and we turn to Jesus and we rest on what He's done for us. And we rest on what He's accomplished through His work at the cross. And we not only receive forgiveness for our sins, but Holy Spirit as a seal that we belong to the Lord. Okay. Okay. With that public identification with Jesus, that we belong to Him, we simultaneously and publicly identify with His people. That a commitment to Jesus is a commitment to His Spirit filled and Spirit empowered community, the church. So our common life in the Spirit makes the Church a distinct community with a distinct identity as the people of God who are shaped and transformed by the person and work of Jesus. That's a lot. That's the speed run through the beginning of Acts. But we need to see this distinct identity piece so that we have context to understand how that identity ties into our distinct commitments and our distinct but we're going to move to look at those now. From a common life in the Spirit makes the church a distinct community in regard to its commitments. Acts 2 <laughs> And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together.
1: They were selling their
0: possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any man. In 2000, this cultural critic, a guy named Neil Gabler, he wrote a book titled Life the Movie. In the tagline of that book, it went something like this. It said, the story of how our bottomless appetites for novelty, gossip, and melodrama has turned everything from news to politics to religion to high culture into one vast So Gabler goes on to talk about how these various forms of media actually have become these reflective mirrors that actually reflect the cultural values back at us. Meaning the things that we value, they're just feeding us more. So if we wanted to to test Gabler's idea here, we would only need to go as far as the grocery store. We go down to the, the New Garden Giant, we look at the magazines and the tabloids that are in the checkout, Lines in the articles that are posted on the cover pages, they're designed to appeal to the supposed values of our modern culture. So that we might see these things, be attracted by them, pick up a copy as we finish our, our shopping. Like one of those magazines at the checkout line? I'm not picking one. Uh, my point is only to emphasize that Luke Lakes us several things here that the early church valued. That were distinct distinct commitments that they had that set them apart from the culture in their day. And and these commitments are true for us, too, and will undoubtedly set us apart from our culture in our day, as well. So what are the things that the early church was committed to? Luke writes that they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, which we'll see as a commitment to the Word of God, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. So let's look at these. So as a community of the Holy Spirit, the church should have this deep love and commitment to the Word of God. As we said, we need to make a connection here that the teaching of the apostles cannot be separated from the teaching of Jesus, that these were were the men who spent their lives sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him as he he taught them, as he spoke the very Word of God to them. And these are the apostles that we sit under in, in the New Testament. So, we can't separate the fact that the Apostles' teaching is a commitment to be built upon the Word of God itself. The Word of God is the backbone of everything that we do as a church. We don't have any authority in and of ourselves, but only as it comes from God through Scripture. Let me read you another quote from the same guys earlier, Tim Chester and Steve James. He described it this way He said, In the life of the believer and in the life of the church, God still rules through His People become Christians when they respond in faith to the message of the gospel. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. The true disciples of Jesus are those who abide in his word. It's the holy scriptures that make Christians wise for salvation, that are sufficient for teaching and rebuking righteousness, and make us thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two, edged sword; it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It is as if the Word of God does laser surgery on our souls, exposing our thinking and our motives. Church, we commit ourselves to continually be steeped in the Word of God in our worship services, as we meet with our, our growth groups, as we read the Bible one-on-one with friends, or with our spouses, or with our children, or just in our own devotional time reading it ourselves. The Word of God is the backbone to all that we do. Consider fellowship. This is one I think we all can scratch our heads over because. When you look at the Greek, the root that's used for fellowship, it, it pops up twice in, in our passage, in verse 42 and verse 44. And the, the idea in this root is this idea of commonality. And that becomes really clear when we see it in this adjective in, in verse 44, because it's translated as common. Right? But it's this idea of commonality. But when we read this passage, it sounds like, to our ears, that the early church was what we might call a commune, where everyone lived together, sharing common possessions, common responsibilities, with no personal property of their own. But I don't think that's the case, because even within the passage itself, we're told that these believers, they had their own homes, because they were going to those homes to break bread together. So in regard to their being, you know, so in that regard, there is some sense of, of personal property that But it's also worth pointing out that the selling and distributing of the items in the passage was in response to particular needs that were found in the church. It wasn't a once-for-all sort of thing. So I think we can say that this picture of the early church, it wasn't a picture of a commune, but it does show us something about the distinct nature of our fellowship as the body of Christ. One, it shows us that as the body of Christ we are committed we're bound up together as the body. And two, it shows us that this is a costly commitment. That our common life together in the Spirit as the body of Christ will require us to live sacrificial lives, to give of ourselves, and to hold loosely the blessing that God has given us so that we might be a blessing to others. I do like the way that one pastor puts it when he says, "Fellowship, fellowship is not just a sentimental feeling. It's not punching cookies. It doesn't take place simply because we're in the church fellowship altogether. Fellowship comes through giving. True fellowship costs. So many people never know the joys of Christian fellowship because they have never learned to give themselves away. They visit a church or a small group study with an eye only for what they need, hardly aware of others. And they go away saying, there's no fellowship. The truth is, we will only have fellowship only when we make it a practice to reach out to others and to give something of ourselves. So as a church, we're distinct. We're distinct in our commitment to God's word. We're distinct in our commitment and our fellowship with one another. Finally, let's turn to think about these last two commitments we mentioned: the breaking of bread. There is some debate between commentators whether the breaking of bread that he talks about here in verse 42 is referring to table fellowship, simply sharing meals together, or if it's talking about participation in the Lord's Supper. And it seems likely that, at least in these early days of the church, it was probably both. That after a meal together, the church would take some of the bread and some of the wine that was left over and they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together, not unlike what we will do shortly with one another. For the early church, and for us, this meal once again preaches to us the gospel of Jesus. That as they eat the bread and as they drink the cup, they are reminded of Christ's once for all sacrifice on the cross for their sin. And as we hear the gospel again and again through bread and, and wine, we are simultaneously rooted we know that as we partake in this meal that Christ is with us, his spirit is with us, and that we are strengthened and built up as his body, as his witnesses for the gospel for this day and for every day that he would have that work for us to do. So we're rooted into here and now. But that meal also uproots us. It uproots us in the sense that it points us to heaven, to our forever and we will meet with Jesus around a heavenly body of Christ as his bride, the church. And such is the nature the nature of worship that worship itself is this practice of rootedness and uprootedness. We gather to sing and to pray and to hear from God from his word, and our hearts and our eyes are fixed on the glory and the beauty of Jesus for another week that we would go out and live for him and we would proclaim our allegiance to him in the here and hear and him. As we meet here, are we also not rehearsing we see of the glorified church in eternity as one of us gathered around the throne of God in worship. And at this time, is a practice for that that we get a little glimpse of glory. And, and prayer. Prayer is a vital part of our worship. Someone somewhere has said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And when I look at this quote, it's been attributed to Martin Luther and Martin. So if you know where it came from, let me know so we can get this all straight. But Prayer is a fundamental life-sustaining practice for the community of the Holy Spirit, both privately and corporately. You notice in the text, when we look at it, that Luke tells us that the early church devoted themselves to the prayers. Perhaps pointing to the fact that they were rooted in these specific prayers, maybe Jewish prayers, that are now being prayed in light of the gospel. Which Christian prayers as well. Our common life in the Spirit means that we have a distinct shift in our thinking about the way our life together as the community of the Holy Spirit influences everything else that we do. I want you to picture a wagon old-timing wagon. There's a, there's a hub in the middle where it connects with the axle. There's spokes coming off of that hub that go out to the, outer, to the outer wheel. And if you're like me, right, we think about our lives individually or it's us and our family and that's at the center of the home. And all of our responsibilities and all of our commitments, including church life, they're all the spokes on the outside of the They're the things that are centering around us, the balls that we're trying to keep in the air, so to speak. But if we understand who we are, our identity as the church and what we're about, our commitments, as Luke lays them what should be at the center of this hub is not ourselves or our family in isolation, but this community of the Holy Spirit as members of the body of Christ that God has, has balanced. And I want to be clear of what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you cannot have any other interests outside the church. I'm not saying that your entire life is wrapped up in these four walls. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that how we see ourselves is not fundamentally as individual. Inter- or the church is just another thing that we need to do. The church is who we are. We are a community of the Holy Spirit, and church life is not another ball that we're trying to keep up in the air as we're doing everything else that we're doing—our recreations, our work, whatever it might be. Our identity and our commitments as the body of Christ to influence all the other responsibilities that we have. We see that from this corporate community. We are one body, brought together by Jesus, bound together by a spirit. In the last few minutes, I just want to talk briefly about the distinctness of our witness. You see this in verses 36 and 37. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We use often this language of gathered and scattered when we talk about worship, or gathering as the body of Christ. That we gather and we're together in worship and we scatter out into our world. But even when we scatter, we never stop being the church. Who we are and what we're about remains intact day by day as we. Live as a distinct community of the Holy Spirit before one another, before a watching world. So whether we're by ourselves, we're heading to work or meeting in our community groups or in our family setting, we still remain the church as we're bound together by the Holy Spirit. We come together and to worship with the church. Who we are and what we're about will certainly seem weird to those who are on the outside of a distinctness here. It's not like everything else that, that the are going to see as normal. But that doesn't mean it's not attractive. Sadly, we sometimes believe that what brings people to faith is this, this flash and showmanship on the part of the church. So let's get him in the door and then God will do something. And maybe that's, that's true in part. But often what we find is God is content to work in ordinary ways to do his work. God brings people to faith, as we said, through the reading and the teaching and the preaching of His Word. God does that. God does that. It's attractive to an onlooker to see a community that genuinely cares for one another, that's sacrificial in the sense that they're not thinking of themselves first, but looking to the welfare of each other and then looking out into the community to say, How can we? and show the blessings of God and the grace of God to our community. That's attractive. It's attractive to find worship that is joyful and authentic and inviting, as Andrew talked about last week. As a community of the Holy Spirit, we are committed to these things day by day. It'll look weird, but it's attractive. church is a community of the Holy Spirit, a living community where things happen because God is at work. Things happen because God is at work. You see that that's where the text ends, right? And the Lord added to their number day by day as we were being saved. God is at work. He's at work in the early church, and he's at work here When our hearts are moved in worship, when people are changed by God's Word, when we turn to God in prayer, when we care for one another, when we act in selfless ways, and supremely when people are saved, all these are signs that God is at work. And this work happens through real, local congregations, congregations just like ours. God God is at work here. We who are called by his spirit would be a distinct community that represents him and his work here. to be of work. help us, as we think about this passage, to embrace the distinctness in which you have called us to be your people and community unity of the Holy Spirit. That we would be grounded in the fact that we you are yours. All of the Christ, Christ's Christ only blood, saved by grace, we belong to you. And that we would keep our distinctness to your word, grounded in it, built upon it, that we would be distinct.